So this morning, if you are visiting with us or if it's your first time, uh, we've been working as a church through a journal. It's called our God is Lectio Divina Journal. Uh, and we're spending this year, we're taking a year to really press into the Word of God and ans- ask the question, who is God? To ask that question for ourselves and not just rely on what other people tell us. You know, there's so many times that we can, the, the, the thoughts and the ideas we have come from somewhere else. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's so good for us to be able to stop and pause and, and go into the Word of God to, to read His Word and say, okay, God, who are you? And to find some of those answers for ourselves. If, if you've not received one of these yet, uh, you're welcome to grab one. They are over at the Information Center. There's no cost to, to those. And even if you're just visiting for one time this morning, maybe you're visiting from out of town, you're, you're free to grab one of these. We'd love, uh, love for you to have one. And it's just an opportunity to, to meet God in His Word. Uh, I know that our connect groups, we have a number of connect groups have, have been established. If you've not signed up for one of those yet either, uh, you can do that uh, at the Information Center. Uh, but it's just, it's just facilitating a lot of great conversation and dialogue uh, around the Word of God. And so we're going to continue our series this morning entitled, God Is. Uh, and we've been asking these questions. We, we've been asking the question, why do I believe what I believe about God? Where does that belief come from? Why do I believe the things that I believe? And, and then... This question, how do I know that what I believe about God is true? Would you agree that it's important that what you believe about God is true? Yeah, that that would be an important thing. And if it is true, then the next question is this, how should it affect my life? If what I know to be true about God is true, how should it play out practically in my life? Because it should. There should be some outworking of what we know to be true of God in our lives. It was a treat to have Pastor L. Clark with us last week, and he shared a message uh, around the the theme or or the subject of God is the one who sees me. God is the one who sees me. And I just shared an encouraging message about three people in Scripture, one who was running, one was hiding, and one who felt forgotten. I think we can all relate to that. There's all, we've all been in places where we felt like we're running, hiding, or forgotten. But to know that God sees us, He's aware of the things going on in our lives, and He extends Himself to us. In fact, last Sunday was the perfect setup for this morning, because the theme this morning is this, God is for us. God is for us. In fact, we need to personalize that. God is for me. Say that with me, would you? God is for me. He is for me. He is not against me. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 31, the Apostle Paul writes this. You can find these passages. By the way, they'll be on the screen behind me, um, but they're also on our app. You can find the instructions on how to download that in the the seat back. There's There's a little card um, but all of these passages are, are on the sermon notes on our app. It says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. We sang about that this morning. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, 
he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? Okay, so you hear what Paul's saying? Hey, we know some things to be true about God, so what are we going to do about it? What's our response to what we now know to be true about God? Our response is this, and our understanding is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can I just say it's a pretty good thing to have God on your side, right? I mean, you remember when you were a kid on the playground, and you wanted to make sure that you were friends with the kid that, that every, all the other kids were, come on, let's be real, was afraid of, <laughs> right? You want to align yourself with the toughest kid on the playground or the most popular kid on the playground, or maybe you were them, and you had all kinds of people wanting to be with you. We, we get this, and by the way, we don't outgrow that. That just moves with us into our adult lives. We just hide it a little bit better, but we still do that. We, we don't like the idea that anyone or anything would be against us. It's not a good feeling. We don't like being opposed. We don't like being challenged. But to know this, that God is for you, that he has moved heaven and earth. I mean, Jesus dying on the cross, what we celebrated by receiving the bread and the cup today is, that, is a declaration of the fact that God is for us. And that if God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul goes on to write, and there's a number of things that he writes about the fact that that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Height or depth, things above, things below. Check this out. Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. There's nothing that you can do or say or think. There's no mistake that you can make that can separate you from the love of God. If God is for you, who can be against you? There's a tone here that Paul is using. It's kind kind of like a little sarcastic. It's a rhetorical question. If God is on your side, come on, who's going to be opposed to you? It doesn't mean that people won't try. It doesn't mean that the enemy won't try. But in the midst of the opposition, we know this. Hold on a second. God is on my side. God is for me. Well, does that mean that when I have an argument with my wife that he is for me and against her? No, he's for her too. Uh, Because come on, let's be real. We can make things weird like that. I love when people say, well, I have God in a box. I'm like, I don't know what you have in that box, but it is not God. It is your own thinking that is boxed in. In fact, the Israelites were facing an enemy, and they ask of God, are you for us or for them? And God says, neither. I just am. I'm bigger than that. I see the big picture. That God is for us. He is for victory. He is for life. He is for restoration. He is for reconciliation. He is for wholeness and completeness in our lives. So he doesn't pick sides. His for us-ness is bigger than what we can imagine. Just made that up. (laughs) I got to watch uh, kind of a cool movie this last week. I, I I love war movies, like just big epic 
war movies, and recently a movie came out called Midway. It was about the, the battle in the Pacific following the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, which absolutely decimated the U.S. naval fleet in the Pacific. That surprise attack, and, and the Japanese uh, Navy thought that they now had the upper hand, which in many ways they did that so many carriers and destroyers and, and all of these different ships and vessels were dis- destroyed in that attack. And of course, you understand this, the Pacific Ocean is huge. It's immense. And now they have hardly any vessels to cover that expanse, that, that huge area. There were three aircraft carriers that were spared and, and a handful of support ships And the U.S. now had to make a decision about what are we going to do? Are we going to retaliate? And if we do retaliate, where are we going to retaliate? And how do we do this in a way that doesn't stretch our forces so thin that that we leave ourselves even more vulnerable than we are right now? And and so this plays out. uh, Nimitz is, Admiral Nimitz is is brought in to to take the lead and, and, and take charge of this and make the most of an impossible Situation And there's a scene in the movie, and put the, the picture up on the screen, where he's standing in the war room in Honolulu, and you can see there's a big map, and what they have on that, that map is uh, all of these markers to indicate where their ships are and where their submarines are, and move them around. Maybe you've seen a movie like that as well, and, they, you know, and they're pushing the, the little markers all over the map and updating it, and a lot of those things are now digital and satellite. And, but back then, they didn't have those tools. And here's what they didn't know. They had no idea where the Japanese fleet was. They had no idea. They had to guess. They had to guess where the next attack would be. They had to guess how big it would be. And, and what happens is the Japanese forces decide we're going to attack Midway because it's this Midway point between the United States, the mainland, and Japan. And if they could take a hold of Midway, they would set them up to be able to attack the west coast of the United States. So it was a decisive battle. But the U.S. did not know if that was going to be the next target or something else. So little bit by little bit, they piece together clues, and they have to risk, and they take a chance and say, we think this is going to be it. And even then, they don't know which direction the attack's going to come from, at what time it's going to come from. And you can watch the movie. They, They end up winning a decisive victory that really turns the course of the battle in the Pacific, this one battle. But they had to guess. Sometimes in my life, and I imagine in your life, you, you're trying to guess. You're looking at your life, and maybe you could lay out a map of your life, the scenario of your life, and you're trying to guess, well, where's the next attack coming from? Is it going to come from this direction in my finances? Or is it going to come from this direction through a relationship, or, or maybe it's going to be something in my work that, that doesn't go well, or maybe it's something just in, in our country or in our political system. Uh, we, we're right now, the, the whole world is on edge with fear surrounding coronavirus. We don't know. 
We don't have the ability to, to take a step back and go, oh, we know for sure where the attack is going to come from. See, because the enemy of our souls, Satan, wants to undermine and wants to destroy the things that God is accomplishing in our lives. And he's sneaky. And he likes to surprise us. And he likes to come against us in places that maybe we don't expect, we don't see coming. And it would be so nice if we could just kind of zoom out on our lives and go, well, here's the lay of the land. And we can anticipate everything that's coming our way and so we can be ready. But here's the reality. With God, we can. See, because while I don't see the full picture, God does. Why I can't take a step back and zoom out and look at my whole life and make sense of every bit and piece. If I can't look at my past and understand what my past has to do with where God is leading me. If I can't look at my present and go, God, why am I walking through the things that I'm walking through? This doesn't make sense. In fact, God, this doesn't line up with the promises that I feel like you've given me. Anyone wrestled with that before? Am I the only one? Right? God, I'm pretty confident that this is what you said that you wanted to do in my life, but this doesn't feel like, if, if that's the goal, you're going about it all wrong. Come on, let's be real. And God goes, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing, and I see the whole picture. See, because if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, nothing can be against you. Like I said during our prayer time this morning, well, that feels, that sounds great on Sunday morning, Pastor Barry, but it's on Wednesday afternoon. God is no less God on Wednesday afternoon than he is on Sunday morning. It is good to be in this place. It is good to be encouraged. It is good to be in fellowship with each other and to worship in this place and for our souls to be refreshed. But in the midst of the battle, in the midst of our week, God is no less God in those places and he is moving on your behalf. David writes in Psalm 118 verses 5 through 9, I want to read this out of the New Living Translation. He says this in verse 5, in my distress, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me. So I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? I love that. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord to trust than to trust in princes. Like I said, it's believed that David wrote this psalm, which is important because when you understand David's life, these words don't always line up with the way his life went. When you understand the things that David experienced in his life. Now, there was an incredible promise that was given to David when he was a young boy. Remember, the prophet comes to his house, and, 
And God says, I'm anointing a new king. I'm appointing a new king for Israel. And he's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. And so the, the prophet comes and he looks at all of the other sons. And God goes, nope, not him. Nope, not him. And goes all the way down. And finally, the prophet has to say, well, do you have any other sons? Oh, yeah, David. He's out in the fields. Go get him. And David comes in, and Samuel anoints him to be the king. Pours that oil over his head. I would say it ran down his beard, but he probably didn't have a beard yet because he was so young. And he receives this promise of what his future will look like. You will be the king of Israel. Come on, is that not a good promise? It's a scary promise, but, but kind of an awesome promise. You will be the king of Israel. But what happens in between? Well, yes, David kills a giant. We know that story well. But we don't look at often as this, is that David's life was full of opposition. He was ridiculed and overlooked by his brothers. He was despised and hunted by the king. After his victory over Goliath, King Saul brings him into the, the palace courts. And David, who is a musician, would play for the king and he would be in the presence of the king. And what would happen from that time to time is that Saul, who had just this, this evil spirit on him, says that the hand of the Lord had departed from him because of the wicked things that he did. And, and, and Saul, in, in these these anger in his rage would grab these spears and throw spears at David. Can you imagine you're a young man who's been anointed to be the next king of Israel. In fact, you know this. You're in the throne room looking at the guy on the throne going, one day that's going to be me. That, that's a little awkward. It's a little scary. And, and here's the thing, it could have given David a big head. But he never, he never goes down that road. And so what he does is he gets really good at ducking spears. See, his, his life was full of distress. The king is trying to kill him. And is sending armies after. Eventually, David is running for his life, living and hiding in caves. His life was full of distress. But we see in Psalm 118, his response. He prayed. He chose to have no fear. He chose to take refuge in God, and he chose to trust God. And from the time that he leaves the palace and starts running for his life, there's years and years and years that go by that David is on the run. There's a wonderful book called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards that I highly recommend. The story of Saul, David, and Absalom three kings of Israel. I want to read to you a portion out of this book, and uh, the words will be up on the screen. You can follow along. It says this, unlike anyone else in spear-throwing history, David did not know what to do when a spear was thrown at him. He did not throw Saul's spears back at him, nor did he make any spears of his own and throw them. Something was different about David. 
All he did was dodge the spears. What can a man, especially a young man, do when the king decides to use him for target practice? What if the young man decides not to return the compliment? First of all, he must pretend he cannot see spears, even when they are coming straight at him. Second, he must learn to duck very quickly. And last, he must pretend nothing happened. You can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear. He turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. He discovered the three things that prevented him from ever being hit. One, never learn, uh, one, never learn anything about the fashionable, easy-mastered art of spear-throwing. Two, stay out of the company of spear-throwers. And three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you, even when they pierce your heart. David sitting in the presence of the king. I, I can't imagine, none of us can imagine what it must like felt like the first time he saw that spear coming at him. This is the king and he wants to take my life. And Gene Edwards talks about, he goes, you know, we all know that what happens when someone throws a spear at you, you pick it up and you throw it right back at him. In fact, we celebrate that. We, we say it's a sign of strength. That if someone comes against you, you, take, you stand your ground. They come after you, you go back after them twice as hard. You defend yourself. And somehow that makes you great. But he goes on to say that just makes you like King Saul. And it will erode your spirit. David never does any of those things. He chooses to duck and duck and duck until the point where the decision is made for him that he can't stay. That it will cost him his life and so he leaves. And it's his best friend, the son of the king, Jonathan, who helps him to make that decision to leave. And it breaks David's heart. And in the midst of this, though he never gets hit by a spear, we know this, that David's heart was broken. In fact, some of the encounters that he has with King Saul while he's on the run, David has the opportunity to lash out, to take revenge, and he chooses not to. He lets God be the one who fights his battles. And he cries out to King Saul when he's in Engedi. And he has the opportunity to take Saul's life. And he, and he calls out to him. He says, my Lord, the king, my king. He says, I, it's not my place to stand in the place of God and take your life. Why are you coming after me? And even in that moment, Saul's heart is broken. See, David understood this before Paul ever wrote the words. God is for us. Even when it doesn't look like God is for us. Well, if God loved me, that's a slippery slope. 
Why are things looking this way in my life? You see, the thing is, David's character was formed in the midst of the fires of adversity and suffering and pain and being on the run. On the run. So let me ask you this. Why would it be any different for us? In fact, the promise of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is, is that to follow God is to, is to choose a life of adversity and opposition Remember the 12 disciples? 11 of them gave their lives in very brutal ways for the gospel. Peter, who at once had denied Jesus, was afraid, took the stand and said, I will not deny him. And ultimately it cost him his life. If this is the case in scripture, why would it be any different for us? See, I think one of the challenges for us is this. When we say we trust God, what we're actually saying is we trust ourselves. I trust myself. And so we get hit by spears. And it turns into bitterness. It turns into bitterness against people. And it turns into bitterness against God. And we forget that God is for us and we start thinking that God is now against us. And by the way, this is nothing new. See, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are presented with the fruit, when Eve is standing looking and the serpent comes and lies and says, hey, you should take, see, it's good, it's, it's, it's beautiful, take that fruit, it, it must taste delicious. Well, God said no. Well, you know, God doesn't want you to be like him. And he turns the thinking of Adam and Eve against God. It's no different in this. When, it, when, when God says he is for us, the goal of the enemy is to try and convince us otherwise. Well, if God was for you, why would the circumstances of your life look the way that they look? But remember, God can scan back. He can zoom out and he can say, listen, I know the call I have for you, declares the Lord. Remember Jeremiah 29. Plans to give you a hope and a future, but here's what I know needs to happen. You have to walk through this fire, and you have to walk through these waters, and you have to walk through this adversity because there's character that needs to get built in you. And he's like, I'm with you the whole time, and I will never leave you or forsake you, but it's going to put the squeeze because remember in Romans chapter 8 where we started this morning, it says this, that, that God chose us and predestined us and called us to be what? conformed to the image of Jesus. We have to remember that conformed and transformed, two different things. And conformed is this. When you're conformed, it's the outward pressing and shaping. A, 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 a potter conforms the clay to the shape that he or she wants it to be. So when God says, I want to conform you to the image of my son, what he's saying is this. I'm going to press on your life in such a way that the things that don't look like Jesus will start to look like Jesus. And here's what I know is true throughout Scripture. That process is not easy or comfortable or fun and quite often is accompanied with great pain and suffering. Now, if that was our marketing campaign, we would be in trouble, right? Follow Jesus, it's full of pain and suffering. <laughs> Yet when we discover the truth and the blessing that is contained in that, 
When we understand that God is for us and because he is for us, he will allow us to walk through things that will transform our lives, we get to a place where we say, sign me up. I'm all in. David got to that place. And ultimately, he would become king. And ultimately, through his lineage, Jesus would be born. And Jesus would become king. And he would establish his kingdom forever. See, in the midst of distress, God is for you. In the midst of loneliness, God is for you. In the midst of opposition, God is for you. In the midst of doubt, God is for you. In the midst of depression, God is for you. In the midst of fear, God is for you. In the midst of debt, God is for you. In the midst of vulnerability, God is for you. In the midst of injustice, God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And all of a sudden, these things come into focus. Our perspective changes. And we're able to say, God, I don't see the whole picture. We can echo David's heart where it says, I, I was in the, in the midst of distress, but I cried out to God and I prayed and he heard me. He heard my prayer and he answered me. And so I will not have any fear and I will take refuge in God and I will not trust men or governments, it says in their princes. We can insert governments and money. I will trust God and I will trust God alone. The same thing is echoed in Exodus 14 when the Israelites had been released by Pharaoh after Moses had come to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. This is what God says. Let my people go so that they may go and worship me. And finally, after the plagues and after uh, God shows himself to be mighty on behalf of the Israelites, Pharaoh says, get out of here. And the people, the Egyptians, gave them money and gold and possessions and, and cattle and says, okay, now go. And so they get to the Red Sea and now Egypt and Pharaoh change their mind. Pharaoh says, send out the army. What have we done? And so now we have the Red Sea and we have the Israelites with Moses as their leader. And on the other side, we have the armies of Egypt barreling down on them. And the Israelites know they're in trouble. They know they're, they're, not, they're not an army. There's no fighting person among them. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. They're being chased down. In Exodus 14, 13 through 14, this is what Moses says. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Do not be afraid. I don't know what's going on in your life. Sometimes I don't even know what's going on in my own life. <laughs> and that's true for you as well. But here's what I do know. 
God is aware. God sees. God knows. God has a plan because God is for you. And church, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? So whatever that issue is, does it mean that, that you shouldn't feel what you're feeling? Not at all. God's okay to have, for you to have emotions and feelings. Come tonight, find out more about that. <laughs> it's part of the way that he's wired us. It's a lie of the enemy to say, oh, no, no, you shouldn't have emotions and that's for the weak. No, God has designed us to have emotions and we feel the things that we're feeling because in the midst of feeling them, God is shaping us and teaching us to trust him. So you can feel what you're feeling and still say, but God, I choose to trust you. God, I choose to not walk in fear. Whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's a job issue, whether it's a relationship issue, whether it, is, whether it has to do with, with work or anything else, fill in the blank. That we can come to a place and say, God, this is what I'm facing, but I choose to trust you. I am in distress, but God, I'm seeking your face. I choose to be still. I choose to not have fear. I choose to trust that you are working on my behalf. And maybe like, like me, maybe you have a hard time not trying to help God out with that. God, let me make some suggestions or do a couple of things to kind of help you out. I've learned this in my life. Usually whatever I think I'm doing to help God sets me back, doesn't move me forward. And so I have to learn to trust. You have to learn to trust, to surrender. See, because God chose you before the foundations of the earth. He called you and he predestined you and he said, I'm choosing to conform you to the image of my son so let me do the work that I need to do. We have to let go. We have to put down our spears. We have to get really good at ducking and dodging. We have to guard our heart. We have to cry out to him on a daily basis. And we have to remind ourselves and each other, hey, God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. God is for me. And watch what God does in the midst of that. And we stand together and invite the worship team up. I love the heart of David. I love the honesty of David. I was in distress. You don't have to fake it till you make it. I think it's one of the lies perpetuated on the churches. You just got to smile and make people think everything's okay. See, because one of the ways that God is for us is he gives us to each other to be a support and encouragement. So you don't have to fake it. It's all right to be real, to say I'm in pain, I'm in, in the midst of opposition, but I cried out to God. And there's a surrender that comes. I invite you this morning as we as we close, maybe there's some things in your life that you're feeling the opposition. You're feeling that squeeze. You're feeling that pressure. 
Maybe you're in a place where you're just living in a state of fear about what might be coming next. And I tell you this morning, that's not God's heart for you. So if you would do this just as a sign of surrender before him, would you just extend your hands out? And maybe even this, in your imagination, in your mind's eye, would you picture whatever that is? Whether it's a relationship or finances or work, sickness, would you just picture that, visualize it in your hands? Say, Lord, I'm offering this to you this morning because you are for me, you are not against me. Father, we trust you. We need your help. And we thank you that when we call to you, you hear and you answer that you are the same God that delivered the the Israelites. You're the same God who delivered David. You're the same God who moved in the lives of the disciples in the early church. You're the same God who is present today. And so we bring these things to you and we, Lord, we ask you to take them. We lift them to you and, and relinquish control. God, would you bring about healing? Would you bring about reconciliation? Would you fight our battles for us? And teach us to trust you more. We thank you that you are on our side. That you never leave us or forsake us. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.